This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Bread's kind of a big deal now. It was a big deal then. 50% of a person's calories would come from bread. And if you were wealthy, uh, if you were lucky, you could afford the wheat bread. It was higher in nutrition. It tasted better. But it was more expensive to grow and more expensive to buy. If you were less lucky, this is still wheat, but we're going to pretend, you got barley bread, and the barley bread was denser, easier to grow, didn't taste as good, and um, it was a lot cheaper. So in some of the history, historical uh, letters and things, we know that, for example, there was this one man who had divorced his wife, and he was required to pay her so many loaves and so many bits of oil and so much vegetables in a week. And it was said in the contract that if he was going to use barley bread instead of wheat bread, he had to provide twice as much because it would take twice as much to provide the same nutritional content as the wheat. And it came to about 1,800 calories a day. So it's kind of a fascinating little bit of history right there. So food is really, really important. Bread is a huge staple at the time as it is now. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, when Jesus teaches us to pray, um, give us today our daily bread, he is referring to a tradition where um, those who govern are expected to be thinking of and providing for their people. That it's not supposed to be about if I'm the king of Israel, I get to take it all for myself, and you get what I think you should have but that there was a responsibility. A good ruler was someone who not only cared about their own person and was honorable and respectable, but they cared for each of us and saw to it that there was enough. Sacred and important task. So Jesus goes out into uh, the... uh, a wilderness area. That's what we're told here in the story of the loaves of fishes. We speak one more time to this story. This time we talk about the story from the Gospel of John. There are a few stories that make it through all the four Gospels, but the story of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of them. And John gives us a slightly different story, and scholars argue back and forth as to whether or not John comes by the story from a different source then the three other gospel writers come to it. There are some changes and some differences. For example, there is um, actually disciples named in this story. The um, other story, it's just basically generic disciples. They have food, they have only a little bit, and they freak out as to how on earth they're going to feed. When Jesus says to them, you feed the people, They have no idea how to do that with what little resources that they have. In this story, we have two named disciples, Andrew and Philip. And they are the ones who say to Jesus, what are we going to do? Jesus says, actually, Jesus 
initiates it in this case. You feed, it's time to feed the people. And there, then they freak out. What? What? The only thing we know of here, the only food we know of, belongs to this little boy. And it's five barley loaves and two fish. And the two fish here, they're not talking about like these beautiful big, you know, it's not a salmon. It's, it's not a June hog from years ago. These are sardines. Highly nutritious, a little on the bony side, you know what I'm saying? And these are the two little fish that this little boy has. So we have all these diminutives here with discovering the little boy. Why is there a little boy in this story? And why is it his lunch? And that doesn't show up in the other stories. And I'm not even sure John Wesley really knew the answer to this question, because when I looked up the, uh, his ex explanatory notes, he doesn't even mention it. So either it's so obvious that those of us now are like clueless, or he had no idea either. What he noted was, which I just loved, is he says, he only mentions Philip, and when Jesus says to Philip, uh, where will we, uh, uh, Jesus says, to test Philip, and then uh, John Wesley says, well, perhaps Philip had the care of providing victuals for the family of the apostles. So even uh, Wesley here is kind of admitting, I have no idea what Philip is up to. Maybe he was supposed, maybe he was the storage guy. Maybe he had the keys to the cellar. Like, I don't know. So we don't really know why in this story there was the little boy and the little fish. But it sure makes for an evocative image, doesn't it? And we get little, 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 all in a row. What is provided was so small. Two little sardines, barley loaves that were only kind of good for half. And they would have been small loaves, probably pita-style loaves, almost certainly pita-style loaves, maybe not as big as this. And so the miracle magnifies to imagine that instead of some good-sized loaves, we have even smaller loaves than that. The other thing that, um, uh, that is different here, let me grab my notes here because I have some good notes here. And a very important difference. Welcome. And that is that when the feeding is finished, Jesus is basically has to run away. So the bread, these barley loaves are shared, the bread of the poor is shared across the feeding. The fish, these tiny little sardines, somehow become the feeding for the 5,000. And what has Jesus done? But he has fulfilled the, the, the job of the good ruler, has he not? He has fed everybody. He has seen to it that everybody is cared for. Somehow, he has brokered, he has provided the power of God and the Holy Spirit through this miracle to show that people can be fed and that there can be enough. And so instantly they turn to him and they want to make him king. They, want, they, they turned to him and said, they, in fact, the line is that they were going to seize him and make him king. And so what Jesus done is, does is he basically runs off. 
he runs away. This is not in Jesus' plan. Later on in, in John, he will say, I'm a king, but not of this world. He is not going to be stepping up and place, placing a crown on his head. He is going to be asking people to rethink the whole underlying structure of worldly kingship. He's going to be showing through his own words and actions what a good ruler. The word to rule in the Greek means to begin. It's a weird one. What will we begin? What will our structures be? How will we care for each other? How will we look to our rulers to care for us? And for John's group, this was an incredibly important question, just like it was for the others. And instead of accepting the robe of kingship, Jesus goes into the mountain, where it is known that God is, but where it is also known that there are spirits who could harm you, and again showing his power to remain whole within systems that were not necessarily friendly. And when he would be doing that throughout John. Jesus is not susceptible to the bad spirits in the way that others are. And it shows how wholly possessed he is by the spirit of God within him. That the spirits bow before him, that they can be cast out, and that he can perform these miracles of sustenance and care here in these settings. There's another story that I want to share with you. This is not the only miraculous feeding. There was a miraculous, there are little food miracles all through the Bible, but there's another one in the Old Testament that mirrors this a little. And anybody in that tradition of the uh, Judean traditions would have heard some of these stories and there is a story of Elisha. I told the story earlier of the oil, the same prophet Elisha, the heir of Elijah, who feeds a hundred men. And again, there is a little boy in the story, and there is a very little amount of food to share. And it is a very short story. It's only a few verses. But in it, we see the connection of the prophet's stories from one generation to the next generation. Jesus is inheriting the mantle of Elisha and Elijah as we watch. It'd be easier, wouldn't it, if our Bible told us exactly who and what Jesus was. But at the time that these books were written, we didn't know. We were still arguing. There were so many different groups. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Is he a great rabbi? Is he a great holy man? Is he a great teacher, a great prophet? What does it mean to be Christ, the anointed one? Is he the king who should be grabbed up and hoisted on shoulders and proclaimed king of all Jerusalem, all of Judea? What is Jesus and our fathers and mothers in our church lives have interpreted this for us and told us who and what Christ is. But that does not absolve each of us from looking at these stories and saying, where is God? What is this story? Who is this 
Christ. And in that way, we are like the many who are fed. It's another story I like. This one is Elijah. Elijah has uh, gotten into real trouble with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel is not a worshiper of the Hebrew God. She worships Baal. And uh, she has corrupted, by the stories, uh, the faith uh, and taken Ahab's heart uh, and um, influenced him to be even whinier and even greedier than he actually is, which is something because Ahab was pretty whiny and pretty greedy. And Elijah confronts them like Nathan had done to David years before. And this is not appreciated. Who likes, which ruler do we know likes being confronted about the bad things they're doing? I don't know any personally. So poor Elijah ends up on the run for his life, and it is a terrible drought. There is no food. He ends up where there is a small creek, and the ravens feed him. So now what do ravens usually eat? Carrion, yeah, it's nasty. So this is, the, this is the level to which the country has come, that even the great prophets of Israel are eating by the generosity of the birds who feed him and share their meals with him. After a while, the stream even dries up, and he staggers into a village, and there is a woman there, a widow, with a son, and she's gathering sticks. She only needs a couple. And he says to her, do you have any water? Give me some water. And she said, well, yeah, I have a little bit, but I will share it with you. And he says, I am hungry. And she looks at him, probably incredulous, like what planet did you stumble in from? Don't you know there is a terrible drought? They are in the land of Baal. This woman, like Jezebel, is a Baal worshiper. She, like her whole village, like the whole land, is suffering from the double whammy of a terrible drought and a terrible king. And he says to her, I'm hungry. And she says, don't ask me this. With these two sticks, I'm going to go home and I am going to take the last handful of flour that I have and the last drops of oil, and I'm going to knead them into a cake. I'm going to make our last bit of bread. I'm going to flatten it out and cook it. We're going to eat it, and that's it for us. And then we're going to die. Are you really asking me for that? And he says to her, just do it. Go ahead and make the cake and the oil you're planning for you and your son, but let me have a small amount first. The the Bible calls us to radical hospitality. How radical is this? And I am reminded of the widow, yes, that widow that we always talk about in stewardship, who goes up to the temple to give her last two tiny coins that equal maybe a penny because she has no hope in any worldly ruler but only the hope of God. She gives everything because that's all that is left. 
I don't know what motivates this woman, this widow in Elijah's day, perhaps knowing hunger herself. She is willing to be generous in a way that those of us who have never known hunger aren't. But she makes him a little cake. And he says to her, take heart, for as long as I'm with you, that jar will never empty of flour, and that jar of oil will never empty. And sure enough, day after day, there is flour for cakes, and there is oil. How amazing is that? I love that story. I can imagine myself as that widow. When I was raising my children, I was so grateful that they could eat. I never had to worry about food for them. I only went through a little bit of a hungry time when I moved out as a teenager. And I was one of many roommates in this house, and I was working, but wasn't enough. And I had, every day, either one box of Kraft macaroni and cheese or one can of tomato soup. That was my budget. It wasn't a breakfast, lunch, and dinner deal. It was one can and one box. And on good days, I had milk to add to the tomato soup and milk to add to the macaroni and cheese. Otherwise, I just made it up with water. And I had this wonderful, wonderful set of... So my, my good friend, Marcy, her parents... Um, when I would visit, they would hand me bags of food, <laughs> knowing that I didn't have much. And uh, I still remember that, that amazing kindness. And, but I also feel proud of myself for getting through that, and really grateful for those who helped me. I think about that widow. I didn't have children then. Can't imagine that. I have another story for you. So, Elijah is not just the prophet of the New Testament for uh, Jewish people, Judean people, people who share that heritage. He is also the center of a lot of folkloric stories. There are so many wonderful stories about Elijah who shows up in the middle of nowhere to do the amazing and the impossible, and this is one of these stories. And it's from this book, I want to make sure to give her credit, The Tales of Elijah the Prophet by Pen... Penina Shram. Now, I'm not telling it the way she tells it, but it is based on her story. I'm going to set it in the Old West. So, there was this rancher in the Old West, and his name was Boss Carson, and he had a huge ranch right in the middle of Texas, and he ran these beautiful head of cattle, these longhorns, and he sold them every year for so much money, and he owned all this land. He had this beautiful wife and this beautiful daughter, and there was a town that he founded right on the corner of his land, and he liked to keep his eye on that town and make sure everybody was good. And one day, one of the Parsons came up to him, and he said, you know, there's this young man in, in our class, and his family doesn't have much, but this man is smart. This young man, he's promising. We got to do something for this young man. So Boss Carson wrote a check for six years, all expense paid, uh, tuition at an Ivy League school where he could study law and religion and grow uh, into uh, the promise that he was born with. Unfortunately, a couple of years after writing that check, things 
kind of took a turn for that area of Texas. There was a terrible drought, and the crops died, and they couldn't keep the cattle fed. And so things were getting really tight, and Boss Carson said, okay, it's it. it's, we're going to sell them at a loss, but we've got to sell and slaughter all the cattle. It's the only way to get through this. And that was right when the disease wave came through, and all the cattle died. And there was no resources at all. And they moved into a tiny little place in town that they could upkeep. And Boss Carson got terribly sick, and his wife was terribly depressed. And their daughter knew that something had to be done. And so she opened a small bakery, and she began making bread. Beautiful, beautiful bread. Mm, smells so good. You could smell it all the way along the dusty Old West Street. And they got a letter from the young man. There had been a secret that nobody knew. As he was graduating from his undergrad and starting his graduate, already all paid for, he confessed to Boss Carson that he and the daughter had fallen in love years ago and that they had been secretly engaged and that he wanted to marry the daughter. He didn't know that things had turned so badly. For though she the daughter had corresponded with this young man. She hadn't wanted to burden him with that news. In fact, it had been way more fun to have a few moments where she could just be a girl in love and not have to worry about all the baking and all the worries. But it was time for some truth-telling. And Boss Carson wrote back to the boy and the young man and said, I'm sorry, I can't give permission for you to marry my daughter, although I'm glad that you have found someone that you love. I have no money to give as a dowry. I have no way to set you off uh, well for life. I have no way to pay for her school. I have no, nothing for any of that. And I need her here, for she's our only uh, help. This is how we eat. And so the son wrote back and his sorrow and said that he would pray that maybe things could change. And then the young man went into the temple and he knelt down and he prayed to God and then he looked up and he called out the name Elijah. A number of weeks later, the uh, daughter is making bread and she's kind of putting loaves in the back kiln of the, of the little shop and there's this great commotion out into the, into the road. There's this dust is kicked up. She can smell it, smell the low. Like, gee, I don't know where that comes from. And there's a small group of men, outriders, who had ridden into town on sweaty horses, and they were washing down the horses, cooling them off a little, and giving the water, horses uh, water to drink at the, at the town pump well. And they looked lean and hungry, then they, re, uh, they remounted their horses and off they galloped down the road. But before they left the town, they drove horse and all into the front of her bakery and taking long swords, they speared through the loaves of bread that she had baked, each of them taking a number of loaves with them and riding off in the dust that got kicked up and the whole of the bakery stank of this dust and horse sweat and leather and she went running after them 
the leader of them behind, the last one, calling to them for shame. For shame. This is all we have. I use what I little I make here to feed my mother and my father. For shame. How can you steal from such as me? And the man on the end of the line, the one who was the leader, pulls his horse around and turns around a little and looks at her. And he says to her, but we are hungry. And she says, and now I too am hungry. And he says to her, here, take this. And he takes, jumps off the horse and he has two saddles on his horse and he unsaddles the top saddle and he throws it down and he rides away. And she goes up to it and says, torn, scratched, useless bit of leather on the ground. This is it. No one's going to want this. This isn't used to in any way to her. And she lugs it back into the bakery. She puts it behind the counter. There's a big set of barrels there, so it slunks over the barrel. And there's this noise, kind of like the clink of a coin. And she looks, and there's a pocket on one side of the saddle. And it's filled with gold coins. And there's another pocket on the other side of the saddle. And it's filled with gold coins. And she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And of course, the family expects at any minute, the rider will be back. And they wait a year. No one claims the saddle or the coins. And so they write another letter <laughs> to the young man. This time the daughter writes it and she says, I'm free. <laughs> and there was great rejoicing. They had enough. And they passed the wealth along. For he was a great leader in that community. And they were able to help many a family through that drought. And the young man was so grateful. And he knelt down in prayer again. And he thanked God. And then he got up and dipped his hat to Elijah. <laughs> I like that story. So one of the things that um, is uh, in the feeding of the hundred is the promise from Elisha. If you eat, there will be leftovers. That sharing that when we share the possibility that all can be provided for isn't just real, it's promised. That the kingdom of God is about that banquet. That there is wealth in sharing that we cannot imagine. That in the breaking of the bread. <laughs> there is abundance. Amen. I am reminded that the children will be collecting coins next week. So bring your coins to share with them, and we will gather those up for that collection as well. Let us take a minute just for quiet reflection. <laughs>